podcast. I'm Richard Stupart, and today I'm talking to freelance journalist Andrew Green from East Africa, who's been following the conflict in South Sudan for a number of years now. We're discussing the peace agreement signed this week between the forces of Sudanese President Salva Kiir and leader of the opposition, Rik Shah. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. So really, the first question I want to ask is, has peace arrived? Is the agreement likely to end the war? I think there are very, very few people who are expecting immediate peace or um, a, a complete 180 shift in what's happening in South Sudan as a result of the signing. Uh, we're hearing reports yesterday from the, the rebel faction, the SPLA-IO, that they were being attacked in areas of Upper Nile State. Um, and we, we also had confirmation that from the government that there were uh, that there was fighting that took place, although they're saying they're the ones who were attacked. So, I, and this comes, you know, the peace agreement was supposed to go into effect 72 hours after the signature of, of President Kier. So, we, realistically, it's still within that window, and they haven't necessarily violated the cessation of hostilities agreement. But it's not a good sign when you're fighting up until the last, absolute last minute uh, when you have to stop. So, I don't think that gives anyone a lot of optimism that peace has finally arrived. And what have the statements been from Karen Machat? Do they seem dedicated to the process or has it simply been lip service? Yeah, I think it's very much the latter. Uh, I mean, you, you saw you saw Machar willingly sign the document uh, when it was presented to him in Addis Ababa. And I think he's in a, a, a more difficult position because he's had some of his, uh, his leader, the leaders of some of his factions um, publicly disavow him now and say that they're no longer supporting him. So he, he's in a rough spot. Kier is feeling um, pressure from the international community and the threat of sanctions, which I think is why he ultimately signed the document, but he did so pending a 12-page uh, list of things that he disagreed with. Um, and he also has to deal with the constituency uh, that doesn't want to see peace, that wants to see uh, Mashar's forces rooted out um, and, and kicked out of the country, devastated. And so he's in this really tenuous, very difficult position where uh, he's got pressure from both sides, and there's no solution that's really going to satisfy everyone. So he just has to decide which side he's going to go with. Can you talk a little bit about what the provisions of the deal were? So aside from Kira remaining president and Machar becoming vice, what else was in the, this agreement that finally made it practical? Well, I think um, it's it's very much in line with what we've been seeing in the past. So you're going to see a transitional government that includes elements from both sides, um, uh, you're going to see, and, and, and that extends not just in the, in the national level, but also on the state levels, um, you're going to see new governments come in in the three states that have seen the heaviest fighting, um, Upper Nile, Unity State, Jungle, um, and, and what the what the powers that you were trying to do, I think, is, is to give everyone a stake in the government that's going to emerge after the fighting ends. Um, the issue that emerges from that is that the Kier faction, the, the government in Juba right now, doesn't feel like Mashar's forces deserve a role in the government. That they, you know, so you rebel against uh, the country, and then you're rewarded with some, you know, some very plumb positions. And especially in, this, in those key states where oil is being produced, um, and they see a lot of revenue. And so, I think that was a real sticking point that that people felt like it wasn't really deserved. Um, I think the other key thing that comes out of the agreement is that there's going to be some kind of transitional justice mechanism, um, which has never really happened in South Sudan before, even emerging from the 20-year civil war that the southern Sudanese rebels fought with this, the cartoon government. And it's something that the international community has been really pushing for. It's going to be a hybrid court that is overseen by the African Union, 
and will hold theoretically hold people responsible for some of the very terrible crimes that have been committed over the past 20 months um, that UN Amnesty and others have been reporting about. Um, again, I'm not sure if we're going to see the commitment from the government or if they're going to want to bury some of those crimes um, and just pretend like they didn't happen. It, it, it'll that'll be of a, a piece with whether peace actually comes to South Sudan and, and whether the transitional government actually moves forward. And how far does the peace agreement cover forces that are not specifically controlled by Mishal? Like, for example, the White Army, who have often acted in his interest but are not actually under his command. Who's, who are the contracting parties here? Yeah, so I think that's another uh, really important issue that has been underexplored by the international community is just you know, who Mashar actually represents. Um, you also saw the, the former political detainees signing the peace agreement, but they don't actually control any forces. So you had this very public split where, where two of Mashar's key generals backed out and said they're no longer part of this faction, and they didn't sign the peace agreement. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not clear that they, when he puts out a call this weekend for um, all of his forces to, to cease hostilities, it's not clear that they're actually going to respect that or that they feel any obligation to. Um, and, and in the same way, you have kind of these, these groups that are aligned with, uh, that have previously signed peace agreements with the, the Kir government, former rebel groups on a much smaller scale, who had been bothering the government since independence. And, you know, who knows whether they're going to feel like they, they uh, have to respect any of the terms of this agreement. If they're potentially going to be losing power in a transitional government that is instituted by the international community, um, then they might again just go back and rebel, uh, back out of any deals they have with the, the Kir uh, government. And so there's this kind of balkanization or, or, or fractioning of uh, South Sudan that's been happening basically ever since independence. And it's not clear that just getting two or three people to sign a document is actually going to, actually means that everyone's going to agree to what that document says. And if the current peace agreement were to fall apart, how do you see the consequences for that being distributed between Kir and Mishar? They have, it sounds like, very different pressures acting on them. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you'll definitely, I think what, you can almost certainly expect that Kir will be sanctioned, um, either by the U.S. government or by the United Nations. Um, apparently, there's, there's, uh, he still has some allies in the form of China and Russia who didn't, is the word that we're hearing, who didn't want to see him getting sanctions. You might not see um, the UN sanctioning him, but certainly the US government has, has hinted that they're out of patience and um, there are going to be some serious repercussions if this peace deal doesn't hold out. Uh, I, I do, you know, the, the UN has threatened an arms embargo to the country. It's not clear why that hasn't already happened um, and why they're, you know, 20 months in, they're still talking about it. Um, I think Mashar, again, if he backs out, if, his for, if the forces that he's responsible for start fighting again, you'll see him getting personally sanctioned, which hasn't happened yet. Um, he's in this weird, very precarious position, or less precarious position, because he can always just claim that he doesn't have any control over those forces anymore, um, so it's not his fault. And you know that's why you've seen him certainly more willing to, to come to the negotiating table, more, more willing to sign documents than he has been in the past. Um, in, in a way that Kier just isn't. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's going to become very personal for the two of them very soon if the peace doesn't hold. And can you talk a little bit about the peace efforts? What was it that finally changed? I get it been trying to broker peace now for almost, what, two years? Um, what finally brought the US and the UN to the point of exerting pressure on the process? Well, I think they had been the entire time. And I think there's been this very interesting game that's been happening where, uh, so for instance, relatively early on into the process, you saw John Kerry and Ban Ki-moon fly into South Sudan, 
Um, and I was at the press conferences that both had with, with Salva Kiir, and you know, you had this very tight-lipped president who didn't really look particularly happy to be there, and then you had these international leaders declaring that Kisa is going to come to South Sudan. Um, and it, that's been kind of the, what's been happening, I think, is that, or my, my best guess is that Kiir gets put under this pressure by the international community. He goes to Addis Ababa and signs his agreements, but then he almost immediately comes, he must be telling his inner circle, like, look, we're we're just buying time, like this isn't necessarily what's going to happen. So then you see those term, those agreements almost immediately violated um, as soon as he gets back to South Sudan. I, I expect that this is probably going to be of the same pattern um, where he just needed to buy some time for himself. Uh, he was he didn't want um, an arms embargo or he didn't want to see personal sanctions against himself or people within his, uh, his cutters. Um, and so he signed this agreement, but Again, it's not clear that uh, that he's really that committed to it. I mean, he gave a speech for 30 minutes before he signed this time, listing all the things that he thought were wrong with the piece and saying that it was being forced on him. Um, and and so I think he's. I, I I think you just see it's kind of like consistent ramping up of pressure from the international community as the fighting gets bad, and then. Uh, and then it's, it's unclear if they're actually going to follow through on the threats if the peace doesn't hold. They haven't in the past, um, and maybe that's what he's banking on again this time. And if Kier's not keen on a peace deal, or not this peace deal, what is his long-term strategy? To defeat Machar outright, militarily, or simply to keep the war away from the capital? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the key question that everyone wants an answer to. Um, I, I, the indications we get from people within his inner circle you know, you have the information minister, for instance, who's uh, a very hard line or supporter from the Dinka community who uh, walked out of the peace talks or the, uh, the peace signing. Um, and he, I, I imagine there's a faction uh, that he's a very vocal member of who's pushing Kier to just completely dismantle uh, Mashar supporters, um, not ever let Mashar back into the government. Uh, you know, they tried this kind of power sharing arrangement and it didn't work out. So like, why, why would you allow him to come back? That being said, and so I'm sure that that's something that's happening on one side for Kier. That being said, you know, Bashar has done this before. Um, he rebelled against the Southern Sudanese rebellion, joined hands with Khartoum for a while, and then was eventually allowed back in and, and became vice president ultimately when South Sudan achieved independence. Um, so Kier has shown the capacity to... Uh, you know, to be very pragmatic, to um, under you know to, to to reach hands across aisles and and for the sake of you know building a government and, and building South Sudan. So, who's to say that he also doesn't want to do that again? But he's just feeling he's he's being boxed into a corner where he thinks that he could potentially lose his position as president um, if he if he comes to this agreement with Mashar again. Um, I mean, that's kind of making some assumptions about his thinking, but I'm guessing that's probably where he is. And, and so, you know, he's, he, he probably just doesn't know, he's just himself waiting to see what's going to happen um, and, and doesn't know what options he really has anymore. And how's the deal being received in South Sudan generally? What has the perception been among civil society and religious groups? Are they optimistic or is there simply a resignation to seeing where it goes? Yeah, I think you saw from civil society groups and especially from religious leaders, everyone recognizing that this is not the ideal peace deal. Um, everyone, you know, looking for very different things. That being said, I think there's an acceptance that this is the best that you can possibly get at this time. What's critical is to stop the fighting 
um, potentially get some people out of displacement camps back to their homes or you know the places where they're hiding in the bush right now and have been for months, um, start to return to normalcy and then go back and start discussing the deal um, and start, start the horse trading at that point. But really, I think on the ground, talking to people, hearing from people, it's just, let's just stop the fighting. If, if this is the deal that does that, then that's fine. We can work within those parameters. Um, but we're not, we're not so concerned about what specifically is going to happen um, as much as we are just that the fighting stops. And so there's, I think, some optimism when Kira actually signed. In the last 24 hours, not that the fighting has started again, I think you, you see people resign to the fact that maybe this isn't, this isn't going to do it. Um, but, you know, people are clutching at straws now. Like, it, it, something has got to work. And so uh, I think maybe still hoping that this is it. And from IGAD's end, did the statements that they've been giving suggest that they think this will work or also the same kind of cautious optimism? I, I think that very much an optimistic caution. And, and it was really interesting um, when... Kier appended the 12-page document with his resi- uh, reservations about the deal. You saw immediately, immediately the United States and others just reject that and, and say, you know, you, you can't sign a peace deal without reservations, so we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen. Um, the, this is the deal. This is the agreement. We're all moving forward with this. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting to see. Um, I think IGAD has basically said, this is it. Like, we can't. We've done everything that we possibly can. If this doesn't work, then it's time for somebody else to come in and, and start dealing with this situation because we've exhausted our resources, we've exhausted our capacity. Um, so I don't know if that was just another threat that was layered on top of the other threats or if that's the reality of the situation and that they, you know, this is their last best hope um, for peace actually to come to South Sudan. And Uganda, what is their position being towards this? Also really interesting, um, you saw an announcement immediately after the peace deal was signed that, so the, the deal calls for all foreign forces to be pulled out of the country, and you saw um, the government of Uganda immediately say that that doesn't include the UPDF, their forces that have been supporting Kier's government and are stationed um, around Juba and other parts of the country. Um, I think that uh, Museveni is, uh, Ugandan President Yori Museveni is, is committed to um, getting a stable South Sudan because it's an important market for his country um, and he needs that to open back up. In addition to the fact that he's probably been promised a lot of money by the Kier government for uh, the support that he's lent the Kier so far. Um, so I think Uganda's in it for the long haul. They're going to they're gonna stick around in South Sudan, which is something they just made clear um, until peace is really established, until it's, it's clear that um, there's not going to be another attempt to overrun Juba, that, that Mashar's forces have really, you know, laid down their arms and are being reintegrated back into the, into the country, or into the government, into the country systems. Um, until, until that happens, until I think the Ugandan government is satisfied that, that peace is truly returned and you're not going to see the UPDF being pulled out. It seems also that Kier has, relatively speaking, a lot of support in his corner. People like Uganda have assisted his forces, for example. Who's Mashar got supporting him? As far as I'm aware, no countries are really supplying weapons or assistance. So how long can he persist if there is no peace agreement? Well, so we've heard reports that the Sudanese government has been um, kind of playing both sides off against each other. So they, there were reports from the crisis group and others, I believe, that, um, that there was evidence that arms were coming in from Khartoum to Mashar's forces. I think that that might have been just uh, Sudanese President Bashir um, trying to 
contribute to an unstable, an unstable situation in South Sudan, which ultimately works to his benefit, um, but not necessarily him lining up behind Mashar. Uh, and I think that's clear because you still Bashir and Kier seem to be on fairly decent terms at the moment, which is not always been the case. And you saw Bashir actually putting a lot of pressure on the Sudanese, South Sudanese government to sign the peace deal, which was interesting. Um, it probably has a lot to do with getting oil back online because Sudan shares revenue with South Sudan's oil production and, and Sudan itself is going through a bad economic situation at the moment. Um, I think I think Mashar has also done that calculus and realized that he just doesn't have the, the international support that he thought maybe he was going to or um, he's running out of money on his end because he's been basically, he and the other leaders of the rebellion have been basically funding this themselves. Um, and then, you know, you saw the split that happened with two of the key generals. And I don't know how much that has to do with uh, money not being available anymore or uh, resources running out on the, the rebel side. Um, and so I'm sure that that all factored into his decision to be, you know, at the table in Addis Ababa to sign an agreement to, re- to recognize that it's, he's losing any leverage that he had. So better to take the, this agreement, which is the best that he's going to get in terms of his representation than the transitional government, the, the representation of people who are uh, his supporters, especially again at the state level um, in these key states in the Northeast that, that do have uh, oil production and do get some of that revenue back. Um, so I think, yeah, he's, he's probably realized that he, he's running out of, out of support and maybe it's time for him to, uh, to, to lay down arms and, and to, to rejoin the government on whatever terms he can. And if the current peace agreement were to fail, would you see the conversation going back to IGAD? You mentioned this may be IGAD's final attempt after which they might pass it on to another forum. Yeah, I mean, that's what they were saying. So I don't, I don't know who that somebody else would be, I guess, potentially the African Union. Um, yeah, so I, I think that would be key. I, I think that would be a key thing to watch out for if the fighting does start again, um, whether they were being serious about pulling out or whether that was just uh, kind of added pressure. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure, or you know, even if it, get, it gets kicked up to like a UN-type level, who would, who would then take over the negotiations? And then a final question. So without predicting the future, what do you think will be the most important issues to pay attention to over the next two to three months? Well, it'll be, I mean, obviously first it'll be whether the fighting actually stops. And then uh, more importantly, looking at who the fighting is between. Because um, if, you know, fighting could could continue in some of these areas, but if it's not forces that are are loyal to Mashar, then that may not mean that the peace deal has failed necessarily. Um, It may just mean that additional deals need to be brokered and signed between these kind of rebel factions of the rebel faction. Um, so that would be that would be one important thing to watch for if fighting does continue is, is who the fighting is actually between. Um, you know, then it'll be a question of who's, how quickly the transitional government is put into place and who's included in it. Um, if you get, you know, if it's all hardline here supporters or um, if it's, if it's um, kind of, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe this. If it's people from outside the government or people who have been loyal to Mashar but have, have you know, are not consistently loyal or who, who have shown some prevarication in the past, um, just kind of trying to read those tea leaves and see who's in, integrated into the new government and, and whether their loyalty is actually with, you know, Mashar's side, for instance, or whether they're not, whether Mashar is actually being represented in the, the new government, you know, whether he himself actually joins it. Um, and 
and how quickly the government is talking about doing that. I mean, I, I think we're going to see a lot of, even if, if the deal does theoretically hold, I think we're just going to see a lot of feet dragging. That's been South Sudan's position in the past, you know, um, trying to draft a, a permanent constitution, which never, which you know, was supposed to happen fairly quickly after independence, never did. Um, it's just these these kinds of things tend to take a long, long time as you try to appease everyone. Um, and so I think you know whether there's actually any progress that happens on any of the terms within the peace deal will be critical to watch in, over the next few months, because again, then you're going to see potential dissatisfaction within the people within the groups of people who did sign it and maybe they decide that it's better just to go back to war so i think those are kind of the two key things i'll be watching for great thank you very much for your time today oh thank you